lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. We've got a really interesting show that I think all of our listeners will get something out of. I've got Dr. Lizette Warner, and she's a healthcare executive, an author, speaker, leadership coach, and turned her skills to developing leaders after discovering a passion for helping struggling professionals through leadership crisis and renewal. And we've all experienced leadership crisis. We've all experienced crisis, that's for sure. As has Lizette, she caused a crisis when she was five by burning down a house. She was the youngest in an immigrant family that settled in Chicago. She learned humility and hard work. Only later did she learn that she was already pretty smart and driven. She ended up getting a degree in electrical engineering and did the unthinkable. After earning six figures and more, she quit her corporate job and went back to school at the Mayo Clinic to get her Ph.D. In the middle of all this, her husband loses his job And that throws the family into a bit of chaos, but she emerged from that chaos very poised, and now she teaches others about power, poise, and presence, and how to get into these states, regardless of what's transpiring. And that's something I think we all can benefit from learning a little bit more about that. She graduated, she got her own executive coach and coaching team, and then became a coach. So coaching the same problem convinced her that she had to write a book so that she could help people more discover how to use biomarkers. And we're going to talk about that on our show today and a lot more. Levette, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's, it's so interesting to me that you're so open and honest. I don't know that I would admit I set a house on fire when I was five years old. <laughs> Oh, yes. You know, I I am actually it's one of the things that my my clients comment on is my, you know, sort of my transparency and my vulnerability, just my ability to, to be vulnerable in, in situations. But, you know, I do it not to highlight myself, but it it opens up something for other people to relate to. Like we all make mistakes, right? Um, oh, absolutely. And, Exactly. So, it's, yeah. It's so Thanks funny because, well, no, there's a, there's a reason I did. When I was in first grade, and I was five at the time, I set the kid down the street his coat on fire. And, oh my God. yeah, I mean, we were playing with matches, and then I went home and I hid in my mom's closet, which, think about it, how smart was that to hide in your mom's closet? But and I thought, now I'm thinking, well, it was only a coat. It was nothing like a house. <laughs> Yes, but someone was wearing the coat at the time. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. But he, let me let me just be quick to say he did not get burnt. It burned a tiny hole in his coat. But you're right. We all make mistakes. We all do things that we can we can learn from. And for you to you know get a electrical engineering earring blows my mind. It's over my head. My brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> so for you to do a big switch from the double E into the world I do live in really intrigues me. What prompted you to do that? Yeah. So, and, and you t- 
talked about it there, sort of. Um, so if you're meaning the my PhD journey or the, the you're meaning really the coaching journey? Well, the the coaching journey. Yeah, because it, it's it's interesting you you picked up on that because I I when I went back into the workforce after having gotten you know all my got my double E and, and yeah did all the PhD stuff when I landed back into the workplace I knew that I was coming in and had 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 a break right and so in Think, I don't know if it was instinctively or if it, there was just a coach around in our workplace. And I started coaching. This was like a, a colleague. So I started coaching with her and I started seeing how this was impacting me. And I was hitting my goals and hitting my next goals. And so we'd set the next goals. So that was my first introduction to, to having a coach. And then subsequently from there, I, I went and I got my own coach and then I started climbing the corporate ladder and started having a team and started having to manage more people and not just the, the P&L and what the business was doing, but the people side of things. And I was inspired then because of the, my, my exposure to coaching to be a better leader. And so to be a better leader, I went and got my coaching credentials. I wanted to become a coach so that I could better address the needs of my team and the workplace. And so that was initially why I went and got the coaching certification. And then that opened me up to a whole world of like, you know, right, this whole world of other thinking and the whole psychology and the, the neurology of it. Um, and that, that really just intrigued me. Well, you know, and it is a it is a whole different world because you look at, I mean, we all have stress and we all have trauma. We all have these things in our life, but it's how we choose to look at them impacts how we choose to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And oh, a yeah. lot of people that, that come to the Brain Performance Center, it's so interesting because, Lizette, the first thing I do is a complimentary consultation and sometimes it'll be a year later that they'll actually come. And when I when I think about it, I'm like, well, did that consultation not go well? Did I? And, you know, I have to actually talk to a couple and they said, oh, no, it went great. I wanted to come. I wanted to come right then. But I wasn't ready to admit that I needed help. And they they saw that as an action that, you know, that, that that's a weakness Taking that action will will show I'm weak. And so a year later, they finally did. Um, Have you seen that in your practice? Yeah, and it's so interesting you pick up on this because I I, I so resonate with you on, on what the clients say. Sometimes even what we talk about in coaching, I talked to a client not that long ago who, this is a year later, they are still digesting what we've talked about in coaching and getting that help. Sometimes some of us look at that as, Ooh, that's, that's, I'm kind of ashamed of that, or that's, that's a weakness. But what I I teach my leaders is that look at any leader out there, any CEO, any VP, any look at 
um, people running the country, whoever is the leader, if you look at them, they have help, right? They have a board of directors. They have an executive assistant. They, they have all of these things. And so what I help my clients understand is that getting help isn't, that's not a weakness. That's a strength. And lean into that strength because that's the thing that can really help you. And, and now, like with the example you gave of your client, now that they're working with you, they're probably kicking themselves going, wow, I could have made this much more progress had I done this way back when. Like, why did I wait so long um, to do this? And I think that's the discovery sometimes that, that clients make is like, wow, I could have made so much more progress had I started earlier. But can, seeing that connection that, you know, getting, getting help, that, that is not a weakness. That uh, somehow, I don't know, people have this stuck in their mind that it's weakness, but it isn't. It's the exact opposite. Well, and I always say it's never too late to ask for help. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's what's important. So don't, you know, don't kick yourself for, for not getting started earlier. P- applaud yourself for getting started because that's when I think people get started when they need, they know, okay, I need to get some help. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and there's got to be that, yeah, that internal resonance of, yeah, this is, you know, this is, what I need. Well, a lot of times I think what slows people down and stops them is they're, we're, we're all so busy and myself included. I mean, we all have so many things that we need to do. And a lot of times we'll put everything else in front of ourselves. And, you know, I learned as a mom, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your kids. And that was my my really first time I realized how important it was to take care of myself because it's just, it, and as a mom, oh, you make sure that your kids are fed. You make sure your kids are getting enough sleep. But it, sometimes you don't necessarily do that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. And it's also, you know, the, the way that you speak to yourself too, right? It, it's learning those, those habits of you encourage your kids, you take care of all of that, but the, the taking care of yourself is isn't just the the eating and the, the sleeping and you know the self care that you do, but it's also the words that you speak, right? Well, it is, and and let's you know you make a, a really good point about the words and how do you talk to yourself. So, can you share with our listeners a, a good example of how you should talk to or how you could talk to yourself? Yeah, I, I love that question, um, Lee, because so so often we, each of us, have this internal monologue or this internal dialogue, and we rarely, ev- if ever, examine that mo- monologue. We just, we it, it exists, right? And it's, it's that constant radio station that's playing that's either telling you, oh, you should have done this, or oh, you didn't do that, or... Um, but rarely do we examine that and go, huh, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Where did that come from? You know, just almost even looking at it as if it's a a separate entity or a separate object out there and just, just noticing that it's there. Um, so that's, 
that can be just a simple action of instead of believing the words that are there, um, to just observe what's there. That might be sort of a, a first step because often sometimes people want to change that dialogue and, and go into the positive, and that may be too big of a step for someone. So, yes, you can have affirmations, and if that works for you, then 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 do that. Here's I'll give you one simple example, Lee, if I can. Please. Um, I had a, yeah, so I had a group of um, C-level leaders, and we were sharing one of the things that we were struggling with in the group is caring for ourselves, exactly what you're talking about. And so we started sharing different different ways that we could, you know, speak kinder to ourselves. And so one of the examples that we gave was, you know, when you're standing in front of the mirror first thing in the morning and you're washing your face, brushing your teeth, and, you know, if you're a man, if you're shaving, or if you're a woman, you know, you're putting on makeup, whatever it is that you're doing, if you just look in the mirror and say, you are beautiful. You are worth the time it's going to take for me to wash your face, put makeup on, or shave, or whatever it is that I do. You are worth this time because you are beautiful and you're brilliant. And that's it. Really, that's it. It's just those small words that you say to yourself. And the experiment that we did was, you know, try this. And every day, so when I did this, you know, every day I walked out of the bathroom going, man, it's going to be a great day. I'm beautiful. I'm brilliant. I, you know, I, I walked out with a spring in my step. And I did nothing different but just told myself, you know what, Lizette, you are so worth the time it's going to take me to wash your face, brush your teeth, and put some makeup on you. And so that is one one small example. Well, kind words go a long, long way. They really do. And, you know, we all have self-defeating thoughts. And I used to have the shoulds. Oh, I had the shoulds so bad. And then they would bring their friends over, you know, shame and blame. And I'm like, I got to lose you guys. So I changed the shoulds to coulds. And I did it earlier Mm -hmm. when we were talking. I said, such should. And I'm like, no, no, I don't say that word anymore. It's I could. Because when you think about, well, yeah, I could do that. Okay, if I did that, well, this would happen. Well, I like that. Well, this would happen. Eh, I don't know about that. This would happen. Well, that's good. I'll do it. So it's just becoming aware because we all have those self-defeating thoughts. And sometimes, you know, we want to be perfect. We want every, we want to give our best. We want to give 110% because that's what we've been told that we need to do, you know, give everything you've got. And sometimes we set listening to that inner voice. It makes us set expectations that are really not manageable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And sometimes it, it, it's worth questioning. Where is that coming from? You know, so, who, who's did, saying that I have to give 110%? And, and what is, what does 110% look like? Or what does 100% look like? Um, sometimes we're disappointed because we, we haven't even really examined what what does the good look like. And sometimes we're afraid we're afraid to examine it. I think fear keeps us in that kind of stuck state, 
And what if I look at it and I decide I really want it and then I don't get it? That's that's a bummer. And that's a wrong way to look at it. Yeah. yeah it's, indeed. <laughs> it's so interesting to me because I've just completed my all my coursework for my PhD and I'm in the process of the dissertation and you know doing research and I, one of the, the greatest things that I have found in the last couple of weeks is a new way to look at crisis and crisis is an opportunity and that's not that's not the way that I had looked or considered a crisis before and I thought I loved that it is an opportunity. It's going to be hardest, you know, to get there, to use it as an opportunity, but I can. Yeah, indeed. And congratulations on the on the dissertation. That's a that's a long journey. Um, so I want to applaud you for that. <laughs> well, the, I'm just um, getting in it. Yeah, it's it's admirable. So good for you that 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 continual learning. I, I see that about you. And I think that that's also what crisis is, right? It's a, it is that learning opportunity, but often we, we don't look at it that way. And certainly, certainly not in the moment, right? It, it, there, there's that crisis piece that you have to acknowledge, okay, it, it is a crisis, but then also looking at it as, as what am I learning through this? Well, and it's so interesting to me because after COVID-19, the pandemic, I think that that was a worldwide crisis and we've all learned so much ab about how we react in those situations. And it certainly when my doors were shut for six weeks because the governor of Texas said, if you don't need to be working, don't be there. Um, it made me, it made me really think about how I act in a crisis and hopefully I learned some things from that. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that really stopped and thought about how do you react in that situation and why? Why did I react in that situation? Does that have anything to do with why you wrote your book? Was it a reaction or was it more of a sharing? It, it was so the whole reason why I wrote the book is I was coaching so many clients and they all seemed to be having the same sorts of problems. And so I felt compelled, well, the best way I know how to help people is what if I take all of these stories and um, write them in the book so that I can share it with others and share that, share those learnings with others so that they can appreciate and make those changes in their lives. Um, because the crisis that really made a deep impact on me was the one that you spoke about when my husband lost his job. I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially now in the um, it just it seems like it's in every every year this happens. But when my husband lost his job, we had two little kids. So when you talk about shame and blame, that happened for me. I had quit my job, my high paying job to go and get my Ph.D. And there we were in another state with no family, like no family support around. My husband had lost his job. He was the only one who had income. And there I was going to school and we had two little kids and he comes home and he shares with me that he's just lost his job. And my immediate thought, Lee, was, 
well, that was the stupidest decision you ever made, Lizette, to quit your high-paying job. Now you're stuck in another state, and that, that was that inner critic coming out, criticizing me for the decision we had already made. Like, we're, we're, we were there. And that voice kept going and saying, well, you can quit school. You can move back home. Um, take the kids with you, you can move in with your parents, like you can do all of these things so that you can get back and solve them, right, and go get a job. And the next thought that I had, Lee, was this, this was the shift where I share in the book is that I remember that fire story that I talk about right in, in the beginning of the book. I share this story of me causing a house fire and my dad essentially I go and grab my dad to come and help the situation because there were two other little kids in the house and so he ends up pulling them out of the house and my dad was the only wage earner that we had in our our family and so it was my mom and my my brothers and sisters but my dad pulled the mattress this burning mattress out of the house with his bare hands because the fire department hadn't shown up And so my dad was a manual laborer. So if he didn't work, we didn't eat, right? And so there I was in that moment where all of this, the inner critics were coming out and telling me that, oh, is that you got to go, you know, just give it all up, just dopey dream and and go move back home, find a job and, and take care of the family. But I remembered my dad's hands from me being a, a little, little kid in this huge mistake that I made. I remembered seeing my dad's hands. And in that moment, I got the courage to know that they somehow made it, right? They made it through that with four little kids. And my siblings were older, but um, with four kids, they managed to survive and thrive. And in that moment, I thought, you know what? If they could do that, I don't know how, but I know we can. And so we stayed. My husband didn't have a job. Um, I stayed in school. It was it was day by day. We took things day by day, and we got help. But we stayed. And it was this moment of poise that I talk about in the book that a lot of times people think poise is you know, it, everything's perfect, right? We're perfectly balanced. It's everything is, is good. I've got all the money to pay all the bills and, you know, we're in wealth, that sort of, that's not poise. Poise is managing when you don't know exactly what your next step is, but you're okay in the here and now because you know you're going to be able to get there. And so that that's part of this this whole comes from this this biomarkers that I share in the book. Um, but now I feel like I've shared a whole lot. I've shared several little stories and vignettes. But but to answer your question, that that to me is 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 where poise for me came from in the pivotal moment in my life. Well, and, and that's a great story because what you're right, poise means something different. To when I first heard the word poise, I thought that means sophisticated, very poised, and 
And as I've lived my life, it, it's it's now it means I've learned how to keep my head, how to have a little bit of resilience. <laughs> so we've got about four minutes left. And you talked about, or I mentioned in the introduction, now you teach power, poise, and presence. So let's just take the last few minutes and talk a little bit about the three P's. Sure. Um, so power, a lot of times people think power is the you know, someone who is in a position of power. But you don't necessarily need to be in a position of power to feel powerful. And poise, I've already given, is that, it, and you said it so beautifully, Lee, it's like keeping your head, right? Keeping your head when everything else might be falling apart around you. And presence, really presence is confidence. Presence is you being able to walk into any situation and take up space. For me, that's what it is. For me, it's taking up space. For you, it might be something different, right? And that, that's the, the difference in the whole power, poise, and presence is they're, they're three separate entities, but they're somehow connected for, for people. When you say taking they, up space, they, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so when when you're present, at least when I'm present. Now, and when I say that, you know, it's different for everyone else. But for me, when I'm present, I take up space. And that means uh, in, in my mind, I, I just extend outwards. I have walked into rooms before and people will come up to me and ask me, Lizette, what are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? it's like you walk in a room and and it's like you take up space i gotcha yeah it's the energy yeah it's that energy that that exudes from you and it's palpable you know to others well and i think that's really an important point to make and it, it, it is all energy and people when you're present in the moment people feel your energy they feel you come into the room and that lets them know she's here and they can look at you and see, does she need something Does she, that just says so much, the presence that we have. And I think that we all want to have presence. We all want to be noted that we're here. Nothing feels worse than to feel like that you were there and nobody even noticed. Nobody even really saw that the, that is very self-defeating and gives everybody a, a hopeless feeling about themselves. And I think about even think I was thinking even animals want to have presence. When my, I come home at the end of the day, my dogs greet me at the garage door and they stand there like, look at me. I'm here. I'm here to see you. And so that's putting it in a very different context but the point is, is that we all want to, we all want to have presence. We all want to be seen. And mm-hmm. I would love to be able to tie the, those, the power of the poise and the presence together. And, and I think that we will be able to do that after our break, we'll come back and we'll talk about the, the book because I know that there's, that's a big part of your book and that will help people understand more. We'll be back to these messages. 
ever get nervous riding in an elevator because you're afraid the cable might snap? It's entered my mind more than once. According to Elevator World magazine, on the rare occasion a cable breaks, the car won't hunge plunge to the bottom. This is because elevators have as many as 10 cables holding them up, each capable of supporting a fully loaded car. Sometimes I feel a little mischievous in elevators. Next time you're feeling like a rapscallion, try one of these little jokes. When there's only one other person in the elevator, tap them on the shoulder and then pretend it wasn't you. Push one of the buttons and pretend it gave you a shock. Or maybe start a sing-along. What's a word for a person who thinks he's funny but no one else does? Vitzel soup. It's words you never I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for staying with us. We've talked a lot before the break, and the conversation's really been leading up to her new book, Power, Poise, and Presence, A New Approach to Authentic Leadership. So, Lizette, tell us about that. Yes, the the book. So I, I told you earlier before the break that I wrote the book in, in all of these coaching conversations that I had with several leaders. And what I brought together in the book, what I was noticing is I've got this huge healthcare background, right, where I've worked with and, and used biomarkers. And for people who are listening, we all know what biomarkers are, right? There's so many of us who wear their, all these wearables, the, the watch that tells you your heart rate, that's a biomarker. The um, how well did you sleep last night, right? So we've got all of these. Your bed even sometimes tells you how well you slept last night. So that those are all different biomarkers. And in healthcare, physicians, nurses, um, it, we use biomarkers to tell if a disease is present or not. Um, if your blood pressure is elevated then it may indicate that you have, you know, you have high blood pressure potentially. So I started looking at the, through the lens of, of what was happening in my clients when they didn't feel like they had power or when they didn't feel poised or when they weren't taking up space, when they weren't showing up confident. And we started looking through the lens of biomarkers. What are what are your unique biomarkers that maybe you don't have a wearable that tells you um, that your you know your shoulders are sagging or your you've stopped breathing in, in terms of like sometimes when you're working at your desk or when you're stressed you you may pause and you're not you're no longer breathing or your shoulders are tight. All of those things are biomarkers. Now the interesting thing about the biomarkers that I work with in the whole uh, leadership space is that those biomarkers are, it's a two-way street. So meaning if I can bring together all of the biomarkers that indicate your power or your poise space or your presence space and bring them all together, we can make that space appear for you. And that's unlike the the wearables that you have, right? Just if you look at your wristwatch, if it if it tells you your heart rate, 
you can't say, okay, my heart rate's 65 and make your heart go up or down to 65 beats per minute. But that's the difference with all these leadership biomarkers is you can now take that moment when you're powerful and what's going on for you in that moment and bring to mind all of the different emotions, sensations, um, motion that might even be there, memories, all of those things, they're, they're rich in in what I have referred to now as biomarkers. So they're, they're rich in all of this information. And if you can identify those are for you, then by knowing that, you can then start to work it with it almost like a recipe. You know, when you, you're in the kitchen and you're making a, a dish, you bring together all the ingredients to make your whatever it is that you know, lasagna or whatever. You bring all those ingredients together and you put them together in the right amount and then you you have lasagna. Well, that's the exact same thing I do with power, poise, and presence. We break each of those down. And I know it sounds a little bit complicated, but it isn't. It, it, we really start looking at those moments in your life, like for me, where I shared before the break, this this moment of what did my poise not look like and what did it look like and what was going on there for me. And I could break it down into into a recipe of where what am I feeling, what emotions or sensations, what memories come up, and when I bring those up, it's like I experience that all over again. Does that That's- make sense for you? Oh, absolutely. That makes sense for me. When you were talking about those biomarkers, one of the things that I've noticed is people will hold their breath and they don't even realize that they're doing it. Though it's interesting because when we're doing the brain training, the neurofeedback, and I'll see all this crazy stuff going on in the brain waves, and then I'll see a flat, you know, flat line. I'm like, oh, they're holding their breath. And I'll say, don't hold your breath. Oh, I'm not. I mean, they really don't even realize that they're doing it. So you're right in that our body has so much to tell us. And I honestly believe the body keeps score of everything going on in the brain. And that's that's where those biomarkers come from, is that brain-body communication. Yeah, in indeed. You're you're because that that's also the other thing that I talk about is oftentimes we we're never really aware of what is going on, you know, in our in our mind of um, we're just not aware of those things, but the thing that never stops processing is your brain. Like even in this moment, if I were to ask you, well, what do you, what do you smell right now? And because we've been talking, you know, probably you're, you're listening, you're attuned to, to listening. And so you haven't really noticed, Oh, what do I smell? Right. And so you're bringing your awareness to it, but, the truth of the matter is, is that your brain has never stopped processing. It's never stopped processing that you're smelling whatever, you know, nice, fresh scents, or maybe something was cooking earlier, and, and you, you may have been unaware of it, but your brain never is. And similarly, like the sensations you feel on your, your fingertips or your arms or your shoulders, like your, your brain just doesn't stop processing. And, and we, sometimes we just, I've heard people say, I can't turn it off. 
You know, mm-hmm. I can't turn it off and they want to desperately. And I think just creating that awareness of those biomarkers, that gives people a better understanding about their mental health. It, and there, I would imagine there are other ways that your book could impact the, the conversations people will have about mental health. Definitely. And, and I think you point to something so um that people may be overlooking, and that is, you know, when you start to spiral or you're starting to spin or, you know, you can't turn it off, there's, if you back it up a bit, I bet there's an indication that tells you when you're about to get there. Like, what's the thing that happens before that happens, right? And I think that is the power of understanding what your biomarkers are because it's... um it's like, you know, when you're, when you're driving down a, a road and you know the, the path and you've got to go left or you've got to go right, well, that's the moment when you know your biomarkers, you know that, that intersection, that fork in the road. Of, oh, if I go this way, I'm going to spin. So I can make a choice to go the other way. And I think that that then is so powerful and so empowering for people to recognize that, you know what, I, I've got to, I've got to roll the play in this. And I think that can be uplifting for people. I think it can be too. And, and I tell people, you know, you, you've got to advocate for yourself in people. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, you've got to, because we do have a role to play in our mental health and it, nobody can do it any better than you can. That's that is for absolute sure. And the book itself, um, you mentioned a couple of times, it's got specific stories and case studies. Is is there anything that stands out in your mind that really illustrates a mental health lesson? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, There was one of my clients and I, I talk about her in the in the book where we, we were exploring for her. She was very much struggling with people pleasing and not wanting to people please, but couldn't really stop herself. And we started to explore her, her, her biomarkers. Like what happens, what happens for you when, um, when you are able to speak up for yourself or for someone else? And what ended up happening for her is she found this beautiful resource this beautiful internal resource where she started explaining that, you know, she had these, um, she's a clinician. So she had these fellows and she was very protective of her fellows. And when so-and-so would want to give uh, work to her fellows, she would, she said, it's, it's like my mama bear comes out and I go to protect these people that no, you're not going to give them additional work. They're already, they're already overloaded. So she found this, this mama bear um, within herself. And so as we explored that further, she was then able to bring this whole mama bear out to help her protect her own time and to protect her from, from wanting to continue to do the people-pleasing. And so she would later go to tell me, oh, was that like mama bear totally came out and protected my time when they were wanting to give me additional, uh, additional work. 
And so it became a point of really celebration and joy for her that she found this this resiliency within herself. That is that's a great story, and nothing feels better than when we can we find our own answers within ourselves. That's that, and that's a great story that illustrates it. The you know I think we've touched on a couple of times that it's okay to need help. And that we all need help. Getting help isn't a weakness. But there's so many different kinds of help that people can need. You know, and and I can imagine if somebody that's very overwhelmed and anxious asks, well, what help do you need the most and how can you get it? That could be a difficult question to answer. How would you help that person answer that question? Mm. Honestly, I would, I would pose it back. I would pose it back to them. Um, part of my, my methods are to help find the resources within my, my clients um, and what their experiences are instead of, let's say, giving them my uh, advice or my um, two cents worth. Of, of what those those experiences are for, for them. I don't know if that helps you. No, it does. I mean, and I think, you know, always posing a question back to someone, it gives them time to think about it and it helps them think through it. And, you know, you, you mentioned the self-care mama bear and that's, I think we've all been in that role before. And it's a role that, your example, she did a great job of getting out of. So how would you suggest a person who wants to improve use your book? I mean, is there a a strategic approach you take to it? Or do you just kind of sit down and internalize it and and figure it out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Many of my readers who've read the book and some of them have commented to me on, on LinkedIn um, or on social media where the, it's very conversational in nature and it's very pragmatic. And I give lots of tactical tools as you go through the book. So it's almost written like a, a workbook, not quite, but there are exercises that you can do as you progress through the book. So it, it's, it's very stepwise in that nature. So um, I would encourage readers, yeah, just grab the book. And if there's a particular thing that you're struggling with, power or presence or poise, whatever it is, certainly go to those chapters. But um, you can approach it, you know, chapter by chapter, and you will learn so many things about yourself. And there's plenty of exercises that readers can can do in the book. I had a reader that reached out to me and said that she was using that book with her team. Um, they were they were going through it and, and reading it through, and she said she loved the exercises that were in there because they could they could do some of those exercises as a as a group. That's great, and it makes it's it's great when you have a document that everybody can use and work from, and then then you can share conversations around that. So being able to use it collectively makes it even more valuable. The it's interesting because the book has it's on Amazon, correct? Or is it just on your website? 
No, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere, um, anywhere you purchase. Anywhere you can get a book. Great. That's a great point to point out. And And the. the, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that the audio in the process of writing or not writing, but uh, speaking the audio book. That's great because I have found that, you know, some people I love to listen to audio books when I'm driving. That's. That's how I get through my any commute that I have to take. So that's a good point to make. So let's say somebody goes through the book and they start reading it. Will they do they need to wait for an outcome or will that outcome just come quickly? So there are a lot of tools in the book, a lot of them that we haven't I mean, we haven't chance to go through, but there are communication tools. So the, the book is broken up into sort of the introduction, and I talk about biomarkers, and then there's the power section, and in power, we talk the power biomarkers, but we also talk about power tools, and so you will take away from that a lot of tools that you can employ today, like at home with your kids, um, and then the... the um, other sections, so poise and presence, are kind of set up the same way where you have you go through poise, but then you go through the poise tools and then also the, the poise uh, pitfalls, the, the things to watch out for, and same for presence. And then on the back end of the book, we get into authentic, how to be authentic, and what does that mean in terms of your energy efficiency. And the additional chapters that I have in the book are about how to, how to create a culture of power, poise, and presence, how to create, um, how to raise children to be powerfully poised and present. So it's kind of, that's sort of the breakdown of the book. And so people can go directly to the chapters, but it's also, there's, there's plenty of exercises and you can start practicing some of those things right away. Well, I think that's great because people, everyone learns differently and some people learn by doing by actually being able to practice and exercise that that's what they need. That is truly what they need. The, when you think back on the book, it sounds like there's so you've got so much in there. Is there anything that if you were going to rewrite the book that you would include that you didn't? Mm. No, at this stage, no, there's not anything I would have added to it. Um, no, because I, I really feel like it's it's complete with the the biomarkers and then the the PowerPoints and presence chapters and the way they're they're split up and then addressing you know bringing it into your culture, bringing uh, creating it for your 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 kids. Um, where I would go next with it would be to pivot it to help people build, for example, their business or their next step. Um, that's actually something I'm thinking about at the moment. Well, that's that's a great application. That's a great way to to kind of provide it, you know, to everybody. I think everybody's looking for growth. We've come out of the last three years have been very stressful in different ways. But one thing we've done is share the stress. And I think that we're all looking for ways to move forward. So I think your timing would be really good to do that. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, you, you mentioned being authentic in the book and, and that's, mm-hmm. 
I think that's something a lot of people really want to work on. What suggestions can you share with our listeners? Yeah, so I would I would take you back to, you know, when you are authentic, and because it, it's such a struggle for so many people, because they tell you bring yourself whole self to work. Well, what does that really mean? Um, but when you are, when you feel like you are authentic, what are you doing there? What what's happening for you? And it could be situational, you know, maybe with your your family or your friends, or you feel like you're not being judged, or all of these things can pop up for you. And so what I would recommend is is for people to identify, go really explore that. And if you want to explore it deeper, go go into into the authentic leadership chapter um, where we walk you through it, essentially, um, what to look for. But essentially, it's bringing to mind when you are in that space and you're able to be authentic, what's going on there. So I'll give you an example. I had a client who was felt very uncomfortable giving a presentation in front of people. It was a new place of business, a new work, and all those uh, had all these critical thoughts of himself, of people aren't responding to me. They're not nodding or shaking their head. They're, you know, I don't know them. Um, Usually when I give presentations and I I do a good job, it's because people are nodding, shaking their heads, or I know the people in the room. And so we worked out this scenario of how to help him prepare to give that presentation among a room of people who you know, he didn't know it was brand new. And so he was imagining his friends were there. And when people weren't nodding, he was telling himself, oh, they must have had an argument with their spouse. You know, it, it's not me. Um, and giving themselves the grace to be able to show up and be themselves. And so that, just as a short vignette, was that's maybe one example I'd give you. That's a good example. And I think that we always have to show forgiveness to ourselves. That's that's for sure. <laughs> what is there anything that because you've you've used the book a lot with clients and is there anything that you feel like in the book people get the most out of or is it just depend upon what their uh, their initial approach is is around? What they get the most out of is what people have told me is that I've been able to take all of the things like executive presence, which is so it's often talked about, but there's not a lot of tangibles to it. What they've said is that I've been able to make all of those intangibles tangible for them. So it, it makes sort of showing up with executive presence. It's made it, tangible like they can touch it and hold they feel like they can touch it and hold it and know what it is now that's a great example and you know i'm sure we could talk about the the book for another whole hour we've got about four minutes (laughs) left in the show so when you think about what are the major takeaways that you want our listeners to get from from hearing about the book yeah i i want listeners to appreciate that there is a whole wealth of data beyond the wearables 
that we often don't pay attention to. And if they take one thing away from the book, it would be that. To, to become more aware of those, the, the non-wearable data, right? The, the non, I, the um, Apple Watch and Fitbits and all of those things, the thing that those, that they don't track, becoming aware of that other data is already within them. Like they're able to, and it's accessible. I think that's a good point. I think some of us, we we want the data, but we're it's easier to get it from your Fitbit than it is to to turn inward and ask yourself. Yeah, and then that's where you come in, Lee. Right, that's where <laughs> coaches come in because we we help our clients um, be that that mirror, that Fitbit um, for them. And and that's a really good point. And I think creating one of the things I love about doing the neurofeedback, the neurotherapy that we do at the Brain Performance Center is it touches that subconscious, which we can coach and we can do counseling. And that's that's all geared towards the consciousness level. But when you touch that subconscious level, it's so eye opening, you know, and one of the things that I've seen a lot of is people's self-awareness really increases and that they start to look to themselves more for answers they trust they trust the data better that's that's it's easy to trust something that it becomes from you know an application or an app or it's a product because there's reviews and if it comes from yourself that makes it a a lot harder i think in the last two minutes that we have I would like to just when you stand we stand back and you look at the the book and I know you mentioned all the different chapters and that's great because that's an easy way for people to break it down but if they get the book and they find themselves really frustrated with themselves maybe even angry with themselves disappointed with themselves what chapter should they go to Oh then Go to chapter seven. Yeah, chapter seven. So chapter seven then would be a great place to go for all of our listeners that are out there. And we're not going to tell you what's in chapter seven, because truly, I want you to go to chapter seven. And it's time to figure it, start to kind of figure it out. I know there's a lot of good things that we've talked about and I've learned some things. I've learned I need to become a little bit more aware of my, my biomarkers. I know they're there. I know what they are, but just slow down and maybe even do a, you know, I, I make time for gratitude every day and I usually do that at the end of the day. So maybe in the beginning of the day, I'll make time for my biomarkers and I hope that each of our listeners can reflect back and think of one thing that they might do for themselves as they start to increase their power, their pose, and their presence. Lizette, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. We have learned so much and it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show.
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. 